Welcome everybody. Welcome and lovely to see you joining from wherever in the world you are and whatever time of day or night it is for you. So our subject tonight, the dark side of social media, is one that deeply interests me personally and I'm sure is of great interest to you all. Um, it interests me personally because if you like the light side, which is contact, connection. In my own life, I have a one-month-old granddaughter who lives abroad and WhatsApp gives me the opportunity for regular visitor uh, video calls so she knows who I am and knows my voice and so on. But we're all aware, directly or indirectly, that there is a dark side. So again, you're probably aware that Many research studies have shown a link between social media usage and vulnerability to depression, anxiety, loneliness, suicidal thinking, often driven by the sense of envy and dissatisfaction when we read how obviously quite a highly selected presentation of somebody else's life compares with our own. Um, for those of you who know MBCT, this is the familiar discrepancy monitor at work. And we are, of course, also aware of the effect on um, influencing public opinion. So I feel particularly grateful that Erin has so kindly agreed to be here with us this evening to share her extensive knowledge and experience of how mindfulness can support us with working with these challenges which are so prevalent in our, in our time. So Erin is from Singapore. She's a mindfulness teacher, very experienced mindfulness teacher and founder of what's called Mindful Moments Singapore. And Sharon's going to drop in the chat, the link to that if you'd like to find out more about her. She's deeply interested in, in societal well-being and how mindfulness can support us to develop the skills both to uh, maintain stress resilience and, and emotional balance. Um, I think when we go through the presentation, you'll learn much more about that. And just to say, she also hosts regular podcasts on Insight Timer. And we're particularly grateful because Erin is joining us from Singapore, where it is now 2 a.m. on Thursday morning. So thank you so much, Erin, for being here with us. And um, over to you. Thank you, Alison, for the very lovely introduction. Um, and hello, everyone. Um, thank you for dropping your hellos in the chat. It feels really good to see um, all of us joining from everywhere. Um, I, I saw one person from Singapore, so you share the same, no, you're not in Singapore right now, maybe. You share similar time zone. It's now um, 2 a.m. here, like Alison said, and um, I am feeling quite wakeful as I usually practice with my meditation. And um, at this moment, as I check in with my own mind and body, I do sense uh, an adrenaline going. So I take that as a good sign. Um, so I'm really happy to be here to share more about the topic today. 
Um, so please um, feel free to um, check in with any questions via the chat. And uh, later I may um, uh, invite you to contribute to some questions um, and you can do that via the chat as well. Um, I would love to guide us through a short practice today in the middle of um, our session. So I hope that um, this will be um, a good experience for all of us today. So let me just um, share my slides. And uh, please do let me know if you're not able to see them. So we're covering the dark side of social media and how mindfulness can help. Um, so I'm uh, born in Singapore and this is where I'm based currently. And in Singapore, um, we're huge fans of the social media. We have a population of, of more than 5.9 million. And um, as of January this year, we have 90% of our population who are social media users. So very heavy on using social media, quite dependent on it. Um, I myself, I am a fan of social media. I use it a lot um, for work and uh, personally, um, but I also recognize that I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I find it really interesting um, um, and um, I'm, I'm pretty much dependent on it. But at the same time, I also recognize that it complicates my life in, in different ways. But um, today I'm not here to sort of admonish social media, not just uh, the focus is not on highlighting the dark sides of social media. I think we're all quite familiar um, to, uh, about it by now. But uh, what I would really like to cover is how mindfulness can help us navigate um, the dark side of social media from um, using it mindless, using usage of social media to addictions, um, to, you know, things like cyberbullying and feelings of inadequacy. And uh, as, as a mindfulness coach, a mindfulness teacher, um, I do work with people on how to better manage these aspects of their lives using the skills of mindfulness. And I understand that um, we are uh, quite familiar with mindfulness already. So um, today I'm just going to dive deeper into how the specific skills and attitudes of mindfulness can help us um, um, harness the power of social media. So I thought it might be nice to begin with uh, one minute of stillness. This is something that I usually do at the start of um, every of our sessions. And basically it just takes 60 seconds of your time here um, to just put aside everything and just be still and silent for uh, one minute. And I'll let you know when one minute starts and one minute ends. Okay, and of course you can have your eyes completely closed or if you prefer, you can leave them open, but perhaps shift your gaze away from the screen and lower it to the table or to the floor in front of you. So when you're ready, let's begin our one minute of stillness.
And when you're ready, I'd like to invite you to take a deep breath in. And exhaling all the way out. You can gently open your eyes or widen your eyes. Thank you for joining me in this one minute of stillness. And already I can feel uh, more presence even over a virtual medium like this. So this one minute of stillness, um, I like to use it on young people. I'm not sure how many young people are here with us today, but I work with youths a lot, 16, 17, 18 year olds. And um, every time before I start a class with a new group of students, I invite them to do this one minute of stillness with me. So these students, um, they go to school with a laptop each. So they bring a laptop into the classroom and throughout the lesson, they work on their laptop. So when I invite them to um, start the class with a one minute of stillness, I give them the same guidance, the same instruction. Let's put everything aside and let's just spend one minute in stillness and silence. And it's really interesting for me to observe that every time with a new class, um, the first time that we do this, there's always um, at least 10 to 20% of the class of students who would shift their attention from their laptop to their phone during this one minute of stillness. So instead of putting everything aside, they just put away their laptop, which they associate with busyness and they switch to using their phone. So they pick up their phone and they open up their phone and they start scrolling through social media. And that's how they choose to spend this one minute of stillness. And to them, it is a, a short period of rest. And to them, scrolling through social media is rest. And I'm sure we have um, different understandings of um, what one minute of stillness means to us. And um, for youth, they are pretty much very attached to their phones and adults too, as well. So we're gonna talk a little bit about our attachment to our phones. So I have a question that I'd like to invite you to share your thoughts with me. And it's a very simple question. Just allow it to be intuitive. We don't have to think about it too much. This is the question. How many times do you think you check your phone every day? Just have a ballpark figure in your mind. And I'd like to invite you to just maybe drop it in the chat if you feel comfortable with that. 60, 50, 150, okay. I'm just gonna try to catch the largest numbers. I saw a 250, okay. Constantly, mm -hmm. 55, mostly for time, wow. Okay, so we have quite a range here. Two, wonderful. You don't have a mobile phone, wow. That's amazing. 100, okay, 45, 80 to 100. All right, zero, okay. Very interesting, thank you. Thank you for sharing this with me. Um, I don't know if there are any millennials here with us today. I'm a millennial and uh, there was a study on millennials checking our phones 
on average, 150 times a day, 150 times. Um, and of course, we don't actually need to have an email come in or a message come in for us to want to check our phones. Sometimes it just, it's just so automatic, right? You see the phone there and you just, before you know it, you're reaching for your phone and opening, switching it on and start scrolling. In. So the, the whole process can be really fast. And we're going we're gonna to discuss this later today. Um, so I'm going to show you an, uh, another uh, set of statistics that's uh, probably less scary. So on average, um, based on this study, this study was in 2018. It's a little dated, but I think the insights are still pretty relevant. Uh, and this doesn't apply to a specific generation. A millennial is, um, are people born in the 80s, right? Um, so on average, we pick up our phones. So it doesn't matter which age group or generation, we pick up our phones 58 times a day. And we lose at least 37.5 minutes of working time per day to just picking up our phones. And half of all phone pickups happen within three minutes of a previous one. I find the last one to be most interesting. But if you look at the, the, the numbers here, you may think, oh, 58 times, that doesn't seem so bad. Um, and 37.5 minutes, it's just a little more than half an hour. And I think I can afford that, right, in a work day. Um, but the, the reality is actually not like that. Right. So if you imagine spending 37.5 minutes um, on just picking up our phones and if they were to happen in a span of time, it probably looks something like this. And it looks OK. It's just a chunk of time through the whole day. Right. But this is not reality because we are interrupted by our phones every three minutes. So in reality, the usage of our phone and also the usage of our attention actually looks more like this. Our attention is actually fragmented. So for example, if you were working on something, you really needed to focus and do deep work on your laptop and um, your phone is right beside you and perhaps a message comes in. So you, what you do is you shift your attention from your task to your phone and you take care of the message on your phone. And, you know, and then once you're done with your Phone, you have to shift your attention back to the task again. But before you can fully focus back on the task, another message comes in. So again, you shift your attention to the phone again. So throughout the day, our attention is shifting back and forth, back and forth like this. And this results in a very fragmented kind of attention. We can't sustain our attention for a longer period of time, right? And what does this mean? Um, based on this article and the studies, uh, psychologists have found that this shifting of attention between tasks can actually cost us 40% of our productive time. And what's really interesting is another study showed that the presence of a turned off smartphone, even if it's turned to do not disturb or turned off completely, it still manages to lower our cognitive performance, right? And this is just the use of phone. And let's look at uh, the use of social media. You may be familiar with the work of Tristan Harris. So he is a former Google design ethicist. He's also the founder of the Center for Humane Technology. And um, of course, he advocates the humane use of uh, technology and social media. And um, his point is that basically technology is designed to simply capture 
our attention and especially for social media, right? The nature of social media. Um, and uh, technology and social media are designed based on how the mind works. So they know that we are all vulnerable to social approval. We are social beings, right? So we care if people look at our posts, we care how many people like them. So um, this you know, prompts them to orchestrate how the notifications come in through the applications and through the phones. And this encourages, to, encourages us to frequently go back to check our phones, right? So the frequency of that use is there. And what's really interesting is he also compares um, social media, the design of social media to be like slot machines at the casinos. And this is based on the principle of the variable schedule reward. So if you look at, if you open up any social media app right now, or even your email, right? And how do you check if there is something new coming in? Basically you swipe it down or you swipe it left or you swipe it right. Um, so the slot machines work this way as well. It's always um, not knowing what's next. And there is always an anticipation. Oh, what do I get? Or what did I get, right? Um, the old school, um, jackpot machines, the slot machines have these lever. Uh, my grandmother used to be a big fan of slot machines. So I used to see her moving her arms like that all the time. And it kind of becomes like a, a mindless thing, right? And uh, nowadays, um, slot machines, instead of the lever, they actually have a button that you just press. And the reason why they change it is because it's just so much easier this way, right? You don't really have to move so much. And um, uh, Tristan Harris had also introduced how the design of uh, technology's hardware actually helps to facilitate this use of social media. Um, when we use the mouse, um, the scroll wheel actually helps to minimize movements of the hands. So we just have to rest our hands on one spot and we just have to move one finger and that's it. And the same goes for our trackpad, right? So basically we just have to swipe up and down um, to get the information. And the same goes for the design of our phone screen as well. We just swipe, get new information. And um, this is how the checking of our phones can become quite mindless. Um, and it's, it's really interesting how we become so attached to checking our phones. And um, it's, it's, um, it's worth diving into how these habits are formed. So I, um, I'm also a fan of James Clear's work. Um, he wrote the book, Atomic Habits, and uh, you might uh, find this, um, his frameworks to be interesting. So this is basically the habit loop, right? And according to James Clear, um, the habit loop consists of four factors. So the cue, the craving, the response, and the reward. So when we complete a cycle like this, um, it's a completion of a loop of the habit, right? So let's take a look at each of these factors. We're just gonna break down the process of how we form habits. And then I'm going to introduce how um, the role of mindfulness here, okay? So let's take a look at cue. So a cue is a trigger. So a trigger can be internal or external. So uh, in the context of using our phone and checking our phone, when we see our phone beside us, right? It triggers the sight of the phone triggers um, the memory of the last time that you used your phone or you checked your phone. And this um, reminds us, right, of the good feelings 
that we, we got, right? Or the temporary relief that we got from checking our phones. And this makes us crave for that same feeling again. So there's craving, right? It reminds us of the good feeling. It makes us anticipate that good feeling. And it is this anticipation of that good feeling, this feeling of craving again, that motivates us to want to act on it, okay? And that's when we tend to move into the approach. Um, this comes a lot with craving. When we want to feel good about something, when we know something is going to give us a good feeling, we are motivated to approach it. And when we choose to approach it, this is when we make a response to the craving or a response to the cue. And the response can be performed internally in the form of thoughts and also externally where it could be a behavior where you really reach for your phone and open it and check it. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're obtaining the reward. And what is the reward? The reward is actually that good feeling of checking the phone. And here you have accomplished your end goal. You get what you wanted. And this reward um, reinforces the importance of the cue to the mind. So we complete the habit loop, right? And of course, um, the more we, we repeat this loop, right, the more, the stronger the habit becomes. And we know that when a habit is really ingrained in us, it gets turned into autopilot. And this is the reason why a lot of times we find ourselves reaching for a phone without realizing it. And only after spending some time with it, do we realize, oh, um, how long have I spent? Why have I distracted myself from my work? So let's go through this um, process again, right? Um, in, in the context of using the phone. So let's say um, you're in the middle of work and you, you feel really frustrated. Maybe it's boring, maybe it's getting nowhere and you feel this frustration. And when we feel frustration, it, it, um, it feels unpleasant to us. And we also want to try to avoid um, that unpleasantness. We want to distract ourselves away from that unpleasantness. And so I see my phone on the table. So this is the cue. Seeing the phone reminds me of the craving, right? And a thought arises in you. Oh, I want to see how many likes I've got from the post um, that I've just put out there. And um, then we respond by approaching. Okay, so you pick up your phone, you open the app. And once you do that, you get your reward. I satisfy my craving of finding out the number of likes, right? And this in turn reinforces the importance of the cue, which is seeing your phone. Or it could be reinforcing the cue of feeling frustrated. So we may tend to associate frustration with work with using the phone, right? And, and somehow the neural pathways gets linked together. So every time you feel frustrated about work, you reach for your phone automatically. So how do we break um, this habit loop, right? If we want to change our habits of um, being attached to our phones or check our phones less or even to address addiction to social media. Um, I really like this quote from the Yoga Sutras. Um, they compare breaking uh, the habit loop to how we take care of a plant. And if you don't water the plant, um, it will just wither and die. And the same goes for habit habits as well. If we don't give habits the opportunity to manifest, then the habits will slowly wither and die away. So we do not actually need to fight, right, to stop a habit. We just need to not give it the chance to repeat itself. So it makes a lot of sense, right? But the question is always how. And I find that mindfulness always gives us the how. 
with mindfulness and uh, especially for those of us who may be familiar with MBSR and MBCT, we really highlight um, the ability to take a pause, right? The pause is very important. And especially in the context of um, being able to manage your reactivity and being uh, able to um, break certain cycles or certain habit loops. So when it comes to this habit loop, um, it perhaps we want to explore at which point, where on this habit loop can we take a pause? And um, it may not make sense for us to take a pause um, at the reward stage or the response stage. So James Clear has divided these four uh, factors into two parts. The cue, number one, the cue and number two craving is the problem phase and response and reward is the solution phase. So um, we want to target the problem phase, which is what mindfulness helps us with as well, right? We go to the root of the problems of our stresses and sufferings. So it may make more sense for us to um, detect as early as possible when this craving arrives, right? And so it may make more sense for us to take a pause, perhaps at the moment where we notice the craving has arisen, right from when we see, when we first see the trigger or the cue. Now the question is how? So we've established where to take a pause, but how? How do we take a pause? And what exactly are we practicing when we're taking a pause in mindfulness. And um, I like to summarize the skills of mindfulness into these four. So every time we take a pause and we pay attention to our present experience, what we are actually practicing is first of all to notice. And I find that the skill of noticing is, is, um, is getting weaker in all of us um, simply because we, uh, we, we are very, we are on autopilot all the time, right? So we, we're not used to noticing, um, especially ourselves. Our attention is always diverted outwards, externally. So it takes a willingness to turn our attention inwards and be willing to notice what's happening in the moment, in the present moment. The second skill is focus. And we know that mindfulness is not all about focus and concentration, but the ability to sustain our attention and to work with distractions is very important. So as we turn our attention inwards, are we able to sustain our attention and focus on what's happening in the present moment instead of getting distracted again, right? And the third skill is the skill of observation. So what are we observing? We are observing what's arriving in each moment in the mind and in the body. So if we go back to um, where we're taking pause, from the moment that we notice the, that we notice ourselves, um, the craving arising in us. We may want to take a pause here and, and just be able to observe what's arising in us. How do we know that there's craving present? And perhaps um, there are sensations in the body, certain parts of your body are changing. It can be very subtle, but of course with practice, we will be able to notice these sensations. Um, what thoughts and what emotions may be arising in that moment, perhaps um, you know, even if there is a craving, there's a wanting for the temporary relief, the emotions of feeling frustrated with our work is something that we can observe as well. The thoughts that come in, right? Thoughts of boredom, thoughts of, oh, I really want to look at that Facebook right now. And even the impulse to act. So we may not physically be really reaching over to pick up our phones, but uh, we can notice um, the impulse to do that. 
right? So sometimes we can notice that impulse to behave in the body as well. So we're really observing this one moment at a time, non-judgmentally, we're not reacting to what's arising and we're simply sitting, pausing, sitting, resting and observing. And of course, the final skill is very important, um, especially in taking care of ourselves. It's the skill of discernment. So besides observing, observing sometimes is not enough because we have to know um, whether this present experience, right? Is it helpful or is it unhelpful to me? So we need to be able to know, to discern that. And of course, we need to, uh, if we find that something is helpful, we want to continue it. If we find that something is harmful, we want to stop it. So if we're able to discern that this craving is harmful to us, it's not helpful, helpful to us, then we want to um, continue with the pause and stop it and prevent the cycle from happening. So this pause actually helps us to intercept this habit loop. And once we intercept it, intercepting it, we're not completing the habit loop, which means that we're not allowing the habit to happen again. And so this is equivalent to um, not watering the plants. And over time, this plant or this habit will slowly wither and die away. Okay, and I thought um, this is a nice point of my sharing for us to just take a pause and practice observing the mind and body. So we're just going to take perhaps um, 10 minutes for this practice. So I hope you all join me. I'm just going to stop my screen share. So with this practice, we're simply going to turn our attention inwards and I'm just gonna guide you to be present and observe what's arising in each moment. Perhaps it's the breath, perhaps it's sensations in the body, perhaps it's thoughts, emotions, or even sounds in our environment. So we're just going to do this for five to 10 minutes and you can sit where you are. Um, I need to remind myself of this because it's currently 2.30 a.m. in Singapore. So I have to keep my posture as wakeful as possible. And um, just a reminder to invite a lot of gentleness to this practice. So when you're ready, just allow the body to come to stillness. If you like, you can close your eyes completely or maybe just lowering your gaze to the table or the floor. And let's start by simply opening your awareness to your present experience. How do you know that you are present? How do you know that you are present right now? Simply notice what is arriving for you, what is happening in each moment. You might be aware of the presence of sounds around you.
sounds coming from different directions. Sounds arising, changing, fading away. There's no need to engage with these sounds. Simply know that sound is here. Maybe sometimes noticing no sound. You might also become aware of the presence of thoughts arising in the mind, streaming through the mind. And there is no need to push away any of these thoughts. Simply acknowledging their presence. So if thoughts are arising in this moment, just know that thought is here. Perhaps there are emotions present, lingering. And again, just acknowledging their presence. Perhaps inviting curiosity to these emotions that are present. Are they present in a part of the body? Are there physical sensations calling for your attention? And simply notice that these sensations are pleasant to you or feel unpleasant or neutral. 
one moment at a time, just resting with the sensations that are here. Doing your best not to change them or make them go away. Resting with your body just the way it is. And the breath may come into awareness for you. Simply notice the body breathing. How do you know that you're breathing? Which parts of the body tell you that you're breathing? And just rest your attention there. Gently observing the sensations of breathing. The movements of the breath. the temperatures of the breath. One moment at a time. opening your awareness to what is here. And just allowing what is here to be here. And as we arrive at the end of our practice, I'd like to invite you to take a deep breath in. And slowly exhaling all the way out. And very gently allowing the eyes to open or widen. And just gently transitioning out of your posture if needed, slowing down your movement. Thank you for joining me in this practice. I'm going to return to the slides. So for this final part, um, I'll just like to share my thoughts of 
social media. And I really see social media as a catalyst. There are good and bad sides of social media, but I want to see um, social media as a catalyst. And we know that um, social media allows us to have more connectivity. We're connecting with people, like-minded people, people of common interests, and also connect with people who may be different, diverse from us. And it is often because of this connectivity, this reach, um, that we, we also have the permission to hide in anonymity. And this is where um, uh, things like cyberbullying or trolling becomes really common because we can simply hide behind a screen and uh, write uh, words that hurt, right? And uh, the fact that social media allows for more accessibility to, to information. And uh, we get a lot of resources out there. And um, this also um, means that we are privy to um, the lives of many, many people. And this uh, encourages us to um, do a lot of comparisons. Um, and we, of course, also see you know, a lot of um, influencers, celebrities nowadays. Um, even you know even day-to-day -day people when they are posting about their perfect life and we tend to um, compare our lives with theirs and um, this encourages feelings of inadequacy right so um, the social media is really a catalyst for these but um, the the tendency to compare and to feel inadequate um, is actually not new it's not exclusive to social media um, I don't know if you can you can relate to this, but back in school, I grew up at a, in a time when, you know, as a kid, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have devices, and so you know, stationery was what we all coveted, right? And if this one kid came to school with this new pencil case, um, a pencil case is not just a pencil case, right? A pencil case becomes your identity, and if you had a special pencil case with all these functions and features, then you were the coolest kid out there. So um, anything we, we as, as human beings, I think we can't just see things as they are, right? Everything becomes a story, a narrative, um, and we can easily take things to be our identity. And similarly for um, social media as well. Social media is just social media. It's a tool, but we often see it as our identity, right? So who are we on social media? Um, and I am, of course, subject to this as well, even as a mindfulness coach um, in the wellness circle, in the mindfulness meditation circle, um, there are many influencers and, and other teachers alike, and they also have social media presence. And every day as I'm using social media, I'm also exposed to, um, you know, what they're posting and what their lives and what their work is like. And um, when I first started, I'll just like to share a personal experience. When I first started as a as mindfulness coach, I was relatively young, at least younger than um, many other teachers out there. You know, they, they, they've had decades of experience, but I was relatively um, young. And I found myself um, identifying with what I call a myth, an identity myth. And I often told myself that I am a young mindfulness coach. I'm not just a mindfulness coach, I am a young mindfulness coach. And when I tell myself that, of course, there's a story behind it. Um, and the story behind it is uh, feelings of inadequacy compared to the other coaches and teachers out there. I am inexperienced and I don't have enough to offer. 
And um, obviously this way of thinking, this mode of thinking, this perception impacts my work fundamentally as mindfulness coach. And I find that every time I work with people, students, participants, clients, um, I tend to overcompensate. I would dump a whole lot of resources and information on them, um, hoping to prove that I have enough, right? That I am enough. Um, and this takes me away from being really truly present with the needs of the people I'm working with. And I often miss what they really need from me, uh, which uh, could be just basic support and guidance. Um, so what I find uh, to be really helpful in challenging um, internal processes is to ask myself these three questions. And this is of course, um, you know, based on our ability to take a pause in the present moment and to reflect. So um, there are uh, three questions out there on the internet that's very popular. Um, it's often attributed to the Buddha himself. Um, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? And this is um, more applied to mindful communication or right speech. Um, and um, I have found these three questions to be helpful in terms of challenging our internal uh, processes. So is it true? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? So I'm just gonna briefly touch on these. So by asking ourselves, is it true? So let's say I have the perception I'm a young mindfulness coach. So is this true? So this is an awareness of partial truths or some cognitive distortions we, we may have fallen for. Um, and it may be true that I'm young, but it does not mean that I don't have enough to explain, right? So challenging the truth of this myth. The second question, is it helpful? So um, this is our ability, this uh, comes with the skill of mindfulness, the ability to discern what is helpful or harmful and being able to see the cause and effect of things. So um, the, the fact that I'm holding on to this myth that I'm a young mindfulness coach, is it being helpful to my field of work, right? Understanding the effect that it's causing on the people that I'm working with. And a final question, is it necessary? This comes back to reminding ourselves of the intention, right? Is it necessary? Is it even relevant to be thinking this way in this context? So why am I teaching mindfulness? Do I, is it because I want to prove myself to be a good teacher or is it because I want to work with people and to be able to support people, right? So reminding ourselves of the original intentions that we strayed away from that. And uh, if we haven't, then is there a need to actually re-evaluate our intentions? So um, I find it really helpful as well to intentionally um, do this reflection exercise on my own. How do I shift from myth an identity myth to closer to the truth, right? So instead of I'm a young mindfulness coach, I'm simply a mindfulness coach. That's all it is. So it's really a simplifying, right? And sort of peeling away all the layers of stories and narratives and, and perceptions. I am a mindfulness coach. And instead of thinking that I'm not experienced enough, I don't have enough to offer, very simply, I share what I know and I practice. And I find this, identity, if you would call it that, to be much more helpful, right? And of course, necessary for my field of work. And um, as a closing, I'll just like to share with you um, what I feel to be a more mindful use of social media. So I'm just gonna list out some points for our consideration. 
Um, and of course, with our practice, it helps to do regular check-in and pauses as we are going about our day-to-day -day lives. And because we are so attached to our devices and to the use of social media nowadays, um, just being able to, in each moment, be aware of what we're choosing to consume. So consumption doesn't just mean food, it means what our mind, what we're allowing the mind to consume. So what kind of content are you allowing the mind to consume? Um, observe any reactivity in the body and the mind as you are using social media and to ask yourself the, the three questions, right? To challenge your internal processes. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? And a self-reminder of our original intention. So what is our relationship with social media, right? What does social media mean to me? Is it a means to showcase my life or is it a mean for me to connect with who or what adds value to my life, right? Uh, Like-minded people. And um, regulation and renunciation. Um, so this involves uh, re-evaluating how much time and how much attention that we're spending on social media and um, creating what I like to call the social media sangha. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a social place. And um, there are many, many people that we can connect with. So who are we choosing to connect to? We, we only have this amount of time, energy, attention and resources. And do we want to be um, spending these resources on um, curating a sangha that you want to spend time with, right? So this is a, a renunciation part. So when in doubt, um, this is a key question that we can ask ourselves. If you were a healthy person, how would you use social media? And um, I'll just like to bring this to our attention. We are, when we use social media, we are a user as much as a content creator. We're all content creators here. And I like to quote Spider-Man here. Um, with great power comes great responsibility. So it's very important to know that as a user, a social media user, you are also a content creator. Um, a post that you put out there, any comment, um, a share, even a like, um, you know, any information that you put out there shifts all the data, all the big data, um, what appears on your feed, what appears on other people's feed. So we need to be able to see the interconnectedness of social media and the internet and understand the cause and effect we are not an isolated individual user, right? We're all connected in some way. And what you put out there can impact someone else. So you have uh, great responsibility. So can we take greater ownership of how we're using social media? So another question, right? As the content creator, um, when in doubt, ask yourself, if social media was a healthy place, what would it look like? How would you contribute to building social media to be a healthy place for everyone? And uh, this is my final slide, a closing. Um, I find uh, the Buddha's teachings to be um, uh, an anchor to my practice. And of course, um, with Sila Samadhi Panya, uh, ethical conduct, um, mind training, and wisdom, I find it very helpful to anchor ourselves to these uh, three, um, when we want to change our relationship with social media. So this is a consolidation of what we've covered so far. So Sheila, the ethical conduct is our ability to regulate ourselves in using social media to simplify it, to renunciate um, unnecessary use. Um, Samadhi mind training 
um, are we able to cultivate the skills of noticing, focusing, observing, discerning, and doing regular check-ins and pauses with ourselves? And Panya wisdom, are we able to remind ourselves on the intentions and to reflect on what social media means to us? Right. Okay, I am cognizant of the time. We have five minutes to 3 a.m. my time. So um, I'll just like to end my sharing here. I wish I could go on, um, but I won't. So thank you all so much for just being present with my sharing. I hope this has been helpful for you. And uh, we have a few minutes for questions. So I'm just going to hand the time back to Alison. Thank you, Alison. Thank you, Erin, for a wonderful and thought-provoking presentation. Thank you. Um, there are quite a lot of questions. We'll never probably get through them all, but quite a lot have focused on the fact that the pull of social media, the strength of it, is actually more like an addiction. Um, and the question is, are these, is this mindfulness practice observing, noticing, discerning, is that enough to break the strength of something which is actually now an addiction? Quite a number of uh, questions have asked, questioners have asked that in different ways. Mm. What, what, what's your response to that? Well, I certainly think that um, mindfulness is not um, the, the answer to everything, um, but it is a very good start and it, it forms the basis of supporting us in changing habits. Um, mindfulness is um, paying attention, right? And this attending, this awareness is the beginning to change. So if we go back to um, the habit building, Right, and of course, we, we do know that um, um, we talked about the strength of social media. Um, it can be very addictive, right? And how do addictions happen? Because it, we allow it to happen over and over and over again. So just with um, much of our sufferings and struggles and we allow it to go to happen over and over again and we build it over time. So in order to undo it, this takes time as well. And I think awareness is the start to that. Mm. And I hope that answers. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. And another quick one, if I may. And, and that is a question um, about how to, for many young people, this is their life, really. So how can you present, how could, could anyone present these insights to, to younger people in a way that doesn't seem threatening, as if you're taking away that something essential to their life and, and well-being, and more importantly, it doesn't seem as if you're just giving them another lecture. This is a great question, um, because I work a lot with young people as well. Um, yes, so lecturing, um, shaming them, scolding them definitely doesn't work as well. Uh, what I have found to be really helpful with young people, with youths, and even with kids, is that they really appreciate insights and knowledge. It can be quite counterintuitive because we may think that kids or children only need instructions, but actually they appreciate very much understanding it. So whatever that I had shared today, um, whether it's the three questions, whether it's that habit loop, if we are able to present it to them in a simplified way, in a way uh, that allows them to work through it themselves and to understand it themselves, um, I think it, it would make sense for them to reevaluate their relationship with social media. But of course, we can't um, um, expect them 
to the change to happen overnight because they are they are essentially born in the world of social media. Um, and so we need to have different, we need to recalibrate our expectations towards them. And of course there are um, external um, uh, software or apps that can help them uh, be more disciplined as well. But I think having an innate understanding of how their own mind and how their own body works, um, teaching them to observe themselves in times of um, addictions or cravings can actually help to mitigate some of the effects of social media. Wonderful, wonderful response. Thank you, Erin. And very, very sadly, we now are at the end of our time. So huge thanks to you. This has been wonderful. And thanks pouring into you from the chat, as you can see. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you.